Good morning. I'm not preaching, but I want to read to you our passage for this morning from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Peter, Peter says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Good morning. Uh, it was my pleasure to be able to preach uh, again for us on Sunday morning, particularly in this book of First Peter. We really enjoyed walking through this together. We only have this week and next week left, um, and we'll be done with First Peter. It's gone, in my opinion, pretty quickly, and that was, I believe, with a break for Easter in between. Um, but uh, we are coming to the tail end here in chapter 5, and uh, I'm excited to, to get into this with you today. So before we do that, let us, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your church. We thank you so much for your son who bought that church with his own blood. Father, as we look today at something that is something we deal with every day of our lives, we pray that you would help us see uh, through some of the, the junk that we bring to the table with this, that we would be able to see through to your word and Father, we have so many lenses that we look through in our worldviews and in our experiences and in the things that we have learned. And Father, we need to be able to see your word clearly, and we need the Holy Spirit for that. We pray that you would help us see that, that it would hit our hearts, and Father, that we would live in accordance with your word today. Father, I pray that even as, we speak, as I speak now, Father, that it would be faithful uh, to what the Spirit would have for this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel like I often get these passages <laughs> um, as I've looked back through my notes. Uh, I feel like I make this caveat often over at least 10 years here at Renovation. Um, <laughs> these passages are seemingly self-serving, particularly when you have an elder being the one who does the exposition for this text. It seems to make sense that it would not be necessarily the, the lead elder in most cases, uh, as that would be probably m most appearing self-serving. Um, what might be better would be to have another non-elder teach this passage. Um, but uh, it concerns me when I hit these, and I, I want to make that caveat that this is not self-serving because I want to give a faithful representation of the text. Um, but the challenge here, too, is to also take the opportunity to make the most of these topics as we travel through the Scriptures. I mean, in the same way, it can be self-serving potentially, uh, to preach on money, right? Something that Jesus talks about more than anything else. And that can appear self-serving, but those are important things to hit. Likewise, this is an important thing to discuss. And particularly when our conviction as it comes to preaching is to not pick and choose texts or to do topically driven sermons, 
Um, when we come to a topic, we need to make the most of it as relates to the text and to be faithful to that. So, in some cases, this is self-serving, and in some cases, it's not. If it is, then I hope that you will see as we cover ground today that it is deservedly so. Um, but in other cases, I'm simply trying to be faithful. So, before we uncover that, let me start by asking some questions. Why, why do you listen to Pastor Matt, Pastor Greg, and myself? Why do you listen to us? Why are you here today? You get annoyed when you see that it's not Pastor Matt who's preaching. There's a, a church that we used to follow online often, and uh, we would skip the weeks, or maybe you skip the podcasts on different churches when it's not the main guy. Nobody knows who the second elder is under Matt Chandler, right? Um, when you have these, these mega preachers, no one knows the second guy, and I'm okay with that. Um, that is my happy seat, as we'll see today. But why do you listen to us? What, what do you do with the words that, that we speak? From, from sermons to, to house gatherings and Bible studies to just our conversations through the week, what do you do with the words that we speak? Let me direct your, your thinking a different way. Well, maybe the same. It depends on, on where you're at. If you could change one thing about us, what would it be? If you could change one thing about Pastor Matt, Greg, and myself, what would it be? Because my question with that is, would it help you, if that were to change, would it help you listen, submit, and follow better? That's okay if the answer is yes. That's why I'm asking the question. My final question with that is why? Why would it be easier to follow us then? And I ask these questions because as I usually try to, to teach us in general as we think, but particularly even when we're sitting under preaching, I think it's important to recognize where you sit now. It's important to take stock of where you are now. Why? So that you may move somewhere. So that you may move from where you are. The idea of making sure that you establish, particularly in this case, an understanding of the relationship that you have, particularly with your elders, and the expectations that you carry with them. If you don't ask these questions and think about where you are now, then how will you know if you have moved? How will you know if the Spirit moves your heart? How will you know if you've grown in your sanctification? So we need to understand where we sit now. What are your expectations of the three of us? What are your expectations of Pastor John, Dave, and Stephen in the merger? What is your relationship with them? What will your relationship automatically be because of the office that they occupy? As we think about where, those things, where you sit now, you have some kind of basis from which to be able to, to move now, right? Or at least be able to measure which way you tend to lean. I think if you walk into any of the relational passages of the Scriptures without understanding where you sit now and what you expect, you're setting yourself up for simply more of the same. More of the same, bereft of growth installed in your sanctification. When you sit in the joint service and we listen to the first part of Romans 12, talking about how we are joined together and how the mercies of God require something of us, and then we have these one another's and how we care for each other. If you don't take stock of how you care for one another now, 
how will you know if you are doing better tomorrow? You see, the scriptures meet us where we're at. They don't leave us there. And so we need to have an idea of where we are so that we may move. And I think Peter himself is a fantastic example of that very principle today. Peter recognizes where he was. He recognizes where he is now. And what his relationship is to the church. What his relationship is to Jesus. And what the expectations are. And he knows where he's going. He knows what it, not only where he's been and where he's at, but what is to come. And so my question is, can the same be said of you today? We need to have this kind of basis, particularly in a relational text like this, that we know where we are going. But the first thing I want you to see today is that suffering is for glory. Suffering is for glory. <clears throat> this passage is full of so, so much context. One of the challenges in this particular chapter is that this is basically the conclusion. He's, he's wrapping everything up and bringing it to a close. And so the context for this is really the whole, the whole book, right? The whole book. And Peter just particularly gave the summary of his entire letter in the preceding verse. And Peter is aware of his whole story, his personal whole story, just so much context. And so first, we want to see that suffering is for glory. Now, I've asked a lot of questions. I suppose I should answer a few of them as we go here. What is the summary that, we, that he just gave us? In chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Verse 19, Therefore... Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That is 1 Peter. That is the summary statement of everything that we've been journeying through. Every aspect of what it looks like to build the church up as living stones. Every aspect of what it looks like to love each other together, to endure suffering to persevere through that it is all wrapped up right there therefore let those who suffer according to god's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good and we'll talk a bit more about this in a second but look where peter picks this up he says a witness of the sufferings of christ he claims to be right as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed he says in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, he will receive the unfading crown of glory. So not only do we have the immediate preceding context of suffering, but now we have this language of, of glory, right? A witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so all this suffering, he says, is leading somewhere. Glory. All of the suffering that is, that is the therefore goes somewhere. It goes to glory. Now, this isn't particularly helpful if you don't know what glory is, right? You're going to get glory. Well, I, I don't know what that is. It's like describing a, a foreign food dish that you don't know by its name. You sit down at a Chinese restaurant and they have like the actual names. 
You're like, I have no idea. I don't know what any of this means, right? You're going to get it. Great. I don't know what it is. What is glory? If you don't know what glory is, then this suffering probably isn't going to seem like it's worth it. It probably isn't going to seem like it's worth it. You see, we've described suffering at length through this book. You've experienced suffering. And some people say, well, it's not as bad as what others may suffer. But that, that's true, potentially. There are brothers and sisters of ours in the world that cannot gather together. Every, every time they do gather together, they risk their life. Our suffering's not that bad. But that doesn't mean that the suffering that you have experienced isn't suffering. It's still true that you've experienced suffering. We've described it. You can relate to it. It's part and parcel of our mortal frame. It's who we are. But what is glory? What is glory? What are we looking for? What are we supposed to be excited that is coming? We've described that too, and I hope that you haven't missed it. My fear is that it gets kind of pressed to the side as we immerse ourselves in understanding and experiencing what suffering is, we lose sight of what we're after. Many of you know that my favorite book is Look and Live by Matt Papa. It is, is definitely a top five book for me, probably top one. I love it. It is a fantastic book. It is so helpful for me, who is much more theologian-oriented, to read a theology book written by a worship leader with his expressive joy and creativity, and it just has resonated with me for years. I love, I love that book. I hope today's sermon persuades you to many things, but reading that book would be a good start. Um, he both shortly, shortly, and grandiosely, at, at the same time, defines glory. He defines it this way, as the weight of intrinsic goodness, the manifest gravity of dignity. As you've heard me talk about from him before, and as you know, resonates with me, goodness, I'm, God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere, is my G. The goodness of God, I believe, is the, the most fundamental characteristic of who God is. Matt and I argue that about every week. Uh, he would argue that grace is, because he's a power idol, and that's what they do, but also because grace is pretty fundamental. But when Moses says on, <laughs> to, to the Lord on Mount Sinai, let me see you. What, is Jesus, or what does God say? He says, no, but I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. His goodness is, is a fundamental piece, at least, of who he is. And when we're talking about glory, he defines it this way. He's saying it's the weight, the weightiness of the outshining, the intrinsicness, the outshining of his goodness, or more brief, the manifest gravity of dignity. Now, the way that we've defined it, at least in 1 Peter, is simply, you get God. You get God. That is what you receive in this great transaction. God himself. The sinner, once bound in, in chains and death, exchanges sin and death and receives righteousness righteousness not just in the form of the blood of Christ but Jesus himself we are joined together with him you get God 
That is glory. If the idea of getting God doesn't stoke your fires, then understand that the place of fire, hell, is the absence of God. Hell is defined as separation from God. You don't get God anymore. So as we continue this passage, you've got to recognize that these exhortations are firmly rooted in the glory that is to be revealed. We get God. That should stir the affections. That should motivate. That should fuel the fires. At least that's clearly what Peter's hope is here. Now, what other context is there, though? I said there's a lot. We're 15 minutes into this and still exploring context. What else is there? The weight of judgment. The weight of judgment. You see, purity is expected. Purity is expected. Suffering is for glory, and purity is expected. Verse 17, back in, up a few verses, it says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, this is what helps temper, <laughs> or maybe justify, the self-servingness of these passages, right? Eldership, particularly in this context, comes at great cost. You see, Peter joins the chorus of the scriptures that indicates greater judgment on the leaders of God's house. A short survey of those, Hebrews 13, 17, you're familiar with. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, that be of no advantage to you. They are keeping watch over your souls, and they will have to give an account. James chapter 3, verse 1. This is just in, in the realm of teaching, let alone actual eldership. But not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Acts 20, 28. This is not explicit, but I don't know how more implicit you can get. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. This is uh, Paul addressing the elders in Miletus. In which the Holy Spirit has made, made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Parents, how do you feel when your child picks up something that's valuable to you and just kind of treats it like a regular toy? How would you think God would feel for the elders to pick up the church that they're responsible for overseeing that's covered in his own, son's own blood and just treat it like anything else? I don't know that it gets more explicit, the value of the church, than Acts 20, 28. He obtained with his own blood. It, 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 is, it is dangerous and costly, and there is greater judgment on those who are leaders, particularly elders and shepherds. Now, this particular verse in verse 17, it seems to echo. It's not explicit because he doesn't say it, but this is the language. Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Put a mark on the forehead of those who grieve the sin around them. Verse 5. To the others he said, In my hearing, <laughs> pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. 
kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. That's pretty heavy by itself. It doesn't stop. And begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. So, no offense, but I ain't scared of you, (laughs) all right? I'm not scared of you. The expectations of leadership in God's house are serious and they're clear. To continue in error is absolutely unacceptable. To continue in unrepentance is absolutely unacceptable for the elders of God's house. God takes his church seriously. He has made at least the three of us overseers of this particular body. We are sometimes caricatured as being severe when it comes to issues of theology and practice. Two things. One, it's our job. (laughs) It's what we are supposed to do. But two, wouldn't you? (laughs) Wouldn't you be pretty severe when it comes to these two things? If this is what hangs over your head? If this is, if, if this is the, the context under which you serve, wouldn't you? You see, a leader who has no fear of Almighty God is a fool, and destruction is his reward. That is the case. That's, that's your context. That's where so I exhort comes from. That's the weightiness with which the post holds. And so Peter roots these commands to the church. The church, the elders first, but to the church. And this twofold picture of glory and judgment. So I exhort the elders among you. All right, Peter, I'm listening. <laughs> I got it. I'm listening. But then listen to the humility of Peter, right? The recognition of his own frame. Just the pastoral nature of Peter. And Peter's accused often of being brash and, and hot-headed and quick-tempered, slicing dudes' ears off and stuff. He's a pretty crazy dude, right? But resurrected Jesus changed this man. Look at the pastoral care oozing from this passage. He humbles himself. I mean, he's an apostle for Pete's sake, right? He's an, he's an apostle. And he... He equates himself with the rest of us, at least the elders. He equates himself with us. I mean, it, when we look at the, at the scriptures, you've got Jesus, the cornerstone, the apostles, and well, you guys are still laughing. At, I worked hard on that one, all right? <laughs> all right. You've got Jesus, the cornerstone, you have the apostles and prophets, and then you have the shepherds and teachers. We're a distinctly separate category, the elders and teachers, right? And Peter humbles himself to include himself with us. As a fellow elder, he says. And then, then, (laughs) then he humbles himself literally by humiliation. He he humiliates himself, he says this, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter missed witnessing the sufferings of Christ. 
Three times, in fact. His cowardice cost him this. But then, a glorious, a, a glorious appeal. What did Peter witness, actually? The transfiguration, right? He got to see that. One of just a few got to see the transfiguration of Jesus. And what does he appeal to? Not that. Not the glory that I saw. What does he say? The glory that is going to be revealed. And who is he? Who is Peter among that? Just a fellow partaker. So humble, so pastoral, so compassionate, humiliating himself. I, he gets it. He's a different man. He's a different man. So the stage is set. Glory is at stake. Purity is expected in the household of God. And Peter is, is joining us in this task. So what is the task? Is the task to see glory? No. Is it to be pure? <laughs> no. What's the task? Well, Jesus. And Jesus takes care of those things, right? We've got God already. And we will get God in the future because Jesus obtained the church with his own blood. And it's that same blood that makes us pure. The purity's there. The task is finished. He covers us. And so we get mercy. So what is expected? What is the task then? Faithfulness. The task is faithfulness. So walk in faithfulness. You see, that's the call that we ultimately come to, is to walk in faithfulness. He says, I exhort you, qualifiers, shepherd the flock. Just shepherd the flock. Oh, Peter, you are my spirit animal. I love this. I love it. Peter knows his frame. I, my favorite, one of my favorite passages, I, I, I want to say it's my top one, John chapter 21. I've said this for years. This is where my heart goes with this. Peter is so humble here. What an imprint Jesus has left on this man. John 21 verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. Grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And Peter gets it. <laughs> the Peter in 1 Peter gets it. So when he exhorts the elders here to shepherd the flock, he does so with the words of Jesus. 
That's how Jesus left him. Tend the sheep. I exhort you, Peter says, shepherd the sheep. In the words of Jesus, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. So the call for elders, indeed the whole church, is faithful care. Faithful care. Jesus' love for his church is displayed on the cross of Calvary, certainly, to its fullest. But his words are beautiful too. We are his lambs. We are his lambs, his sheep. And this has to matter to us. It has to matter to us. It provides and protects for each of these three coming exhortations. They cannot be done. We cannot be faithful in them if not for this. That we are his sheep that he loves. I want to make a special note here. It says, shepherd the flock among you. That is an important qualifier. I don't want to spend too much time on it because it's not the main thrust of this passage, but that's why membership is so important for us at Renovation. Membership helps us know who's among us. Who is our flock? Who are we responsible for? Hebrews thirteen seventeen is a horrifying passage to any elder who doesn't know who his sheep are. I <laughs> want to know who God is going to hold me accountable for. If it's anyone and everything that, is, that has crossed my path, I'm a lost man. And knowing who I'm accountable for is an integral part to good care. How else do you know if the sheep is lost if you don't know that it's already supposed to be among your number? And so membership is an incredibly important aspect for this. For those among you, this is also an important part for discipline. When it comes to the sheep that are among us, there's passages that talk about people going out from us because they were never among us. And so it's important for us to know when the effectiveness and also the limit of our care naturally ends by the hand of God. So being among the flock is important for us. It's important for you, too. Be in the flock. Be where you're supposed to be. Don't be the lost wandering sheep. Be among the sheep. That's where you get tended. That's where you get fed. That's where you get cared for. Be among the sheep. And so what is faithful care? Peter proceeds to give us three sins that elders are especially prone to and three antidotes to which they must give attention. What I like about this passage is, is it, it describes the task of eldership so much more than a lot of the other passages that we typically hear when it comes to preaching about elders. This is the qualifications are absolutely foundational to, to who occupies the office of elder. Absolutely foundational to that. But what do you do... <laughs> Once you're already in the office, this passage. This is what we have to watch out for. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time describing what we watch out for, so much of how it impacts the church. In our elders' meetings, we, we talk about these things, and, and the, the grace is there, <laughs> but uh, it's expected. You don't get to take an entire season to decide if you want to come back when we address each other 
on these things. You get called out and called back right away. That's the standard that is there for God's leaders. But when it comes to the church, these three things are, are what we, we want to look for. The first one, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but answered willingly as God would have you. What's interesting about this is that this is probably one of the most overlooked of the three. At least in the church, churches that I've, that I've been in, the, the preaching that I've heard, the books that I've seen, this particular of the three is the least written about, it's the, it's the least talked about, discussed. It's by far the other two that get the lion's share. So we're going to spend more time on this particular one. This one seems to, I think, have to do, it's overlooking, I think it has to do with like the, expect, the expectations. The expectations, particularly of the sheep. <laughs> when it comes to this particular thing, you're saying it's your job. So do it, right? I mean, that's the American culture, right? It's your job, just do it. You're an elder, so eld. You're a shepherd, so shep, right? Do the thing, do your job. We need to give attention to this first pair for two reasons. Number one, shepherding is really difficult. It's costly. Now listen, I'm far from a woe is me type dude, but I want to take the opportunity to give you a window into this thing that we do. We, we don't talk about it much ourselves. We don't want, I don't want your sympathy. I don't want pity. I don't want those things. I want you to see what goes on in God's church and the function that we, that we fulfill. I want you to have just a window into this thing. It, it's hard work. Just to be clear, it's hard work. And, and even something that was important for me to kind of recognize um, a few years ago is that the work of, of being a shepherd, an elder, is it's tough. And it's ministry. But it is still, yes, our, particularly Matt and I's job when we're talking mostly staff type stuff, that's not free from the curse. <laughs> There's thorns in our work too. I think I had some kind of naive view that pastoral ministry, when it goes right, particularly Hebrews 13, 17, with joy, not with groaning, is that our work was separate from the curse, and it's not. It's not. It comes with its own thorns. It's hard work. But some of the things that you may not see or understand about the office particularly is things like betrayal. Betrayal that, that, that hits at the top. Betrayal from sheep. Fortunately, not here. We have not had betrayal amongst the elders, but it is not uncommon for elders to betray each other. From simple betraying of confidences to full-on betrayal of full relationship. About two circles out from us when we're thinking elders that we are kind of involved with had an elder's wife having an affair with another elder in the church. That's a thing, and it's not uncommon. Betrayal in the sense of the investment of that hard work into discipling people only to have them, after two, three years of intense pursuit and relationship, turn and leave. 
for no reason. <laughs> and they're gone. Depression that comes with that. With, with pushing and pushing and pushing and not seeing fruit, or at least that you can see. <laughs> not getting paid enough, we'll just throw that out there. I joke that. Um, I generally don't mean it. But it's a thing. It's a thing. It's exhausting. My hours are yes. I, one of the frustrating things about it is that it's provoking. We get put in situations that, one, we didn't ask for, two, don't want to be in, and three, still have to deal with. And I see my flesh come out in those moments. I've been provoked <laughs> to sin. I've been, I've stumbled over someone else. It's something that I have to give an account for. Now, in the same way that we would push you, that's heat in my life. Yes, it's grace. It shows me that I'm not the shepherd. It's tough, man. It's not just tough for us. It's tough for our families. We don't walk alone. Our helpmates help. But they're not called to this. That's hard for them, too. Specifically, just targeted by Satan. I'm telling you what, every time I preach, the target just moves off of him. Things happen in my weeks when I'm supposed to preach. And I, I think I feel it more than him. He feels released. He's like, no target, and I can get things done, actually. And I'm like, I don't have room for this in my schedule, and all these things are starting to happen because I'm supposed to preach on Sunday. It happens every time. I'm, I'm serious. The target just shifts. And I, well, I've been, I hate to say this for those, they're not in here right now. I can talk about them. I don't see them. Our deacons are feeling this, like the target has moved to them. They're starting to feel some of that heat. It's been a little amusing to us because we're like, yep, welcome to leadership. <laughs> That's part of what it is, you know? And so look, I'm, again, not looking for sympathy, just an understanding that I don't mean to disparage you or your career. I, I, I really believe that our profession is not more holy or more sacred than yours. Okay, I, I really believe that. But what is different is that in our particular case, souls are at stake. That's a different thing. It's not more holy. It's not more sacred. Souls are at stake. It's different. And so... I think it's important for us to give attention to this idea of not under compulsion, but willingly, because sometimes it's really hard to do it willingly for all the reasons that we just talked about. But there's a second reason particularly for this one, and that it's, it should be desirable. It should not only be, I mean, for real, you hang all that I just described up to you, and that's, that's just... It's just like categories of jeopardy. We haven't even filled in all of the things. Just looking at those, why would you do it? Good question. <laughs> I find myself asking that often. I, I didn't sign up for most of this. I just want to teach the Bible. I just want to be a, a, a Christian in our, in our culture, lead my family well, and enjoy 
community. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't ask for a lot of this stuff. It should still be desirable. That, that's the call. That's what it's saying. Why? Two reasons. <laughs> so that you pursue it. If it's desirable, you go after it. You go after it. You fight hard for it. And what that does practically here is it makes me fight for my other elders. I fight for Matt. I fight for Greg. I'm going to fight for the other three that are coming along. They're my brothers in arms. I fight for the elders that aren't over this place. They're not among us. The other elders that serve, I defer to them. I give grace to them. I understand what it is that they're called to. I fight for them. But the other thing that comes with that is that it should stave off slothfulness or, or laziness. It's easy when you have those things hanging over you to just be like, man... I need a breather. I need a break. I need a. I'm gonna watch YouTube for three hours today. <laughs> Just back off, go into a rabbit hole, and escape. Now, for a comfort idol who wants to look elsewhere, this one is is much more my wheelhouse. But the scriptures say that it should be a desirable thing. It should it should help put off laziness. It's something to pursue. It's something that when someone betrays you, you still find a way to be compassionate and try to care for them and bring them back. It means that even when people hurl insults at you, you understand that they are simply missing because they're aiming at Jesus. When, when we desire it, it changes the entire game. 1 Timothy 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verse 1 says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's something that should be desirable. It is a noble task. Our text tells us willingly. Hebrews 13, 17 has echoes of this. With let them do this with joy and not with groaning because it's supposed to be of advantage to you. Paul, ready to leave this earth and just be with Jesus, says that it is of better advantage for you the sheep that he cares for, that I remain. He's a man that the people need to care for them. It is a noble task. It is a desirable thing. Now listen, I, I played football and I like weightlifting. I can grin and bear it with the best of them. But that's not the call of an elder. Let me, let me help you understand it. You lay your life down willingly like the great shepherd did desiring that because greater love has no man known than the one that would lay his life down for another lay it down willingly and Jesus is standing in front of Pilate he says you have no authority over me except that which I give to you I lay my life down on my own accord let me turn this to you, particularly men, since we're talking about elders. There are some of you among us <laughs> that should be rightly desiring this office. I know, it, it, I, didn't, I didn't really sell it well. Um, <laughs> some of that's coming. Um, there's some of you that should desire this, and rightly so. Not for the reasons that we're getting ready to talk about, but for the right reasons. 
and one or maybe two things are potentially standing in your way. Cowardice or laziness. Cowardice or laziness. The idea is the same for you as it is for me. If you are called to pursue eldership, to exercise oversight, it should be not under compulsion. We're not going to come make you do it. We've tried that. It did not go well. We can't. We can't do something in you that only the Holy Spirit can do. We're not going to compel you to do it. It needs to be willingly, as God would have you. Now listen, I again did not sell it well. I'm afraid of those things too. We do it with the boldness of the Holy Spirit. Cowardice needs to move off the table. Laziness. What's stopping you? The question that we've been asking to a few men in particular is, in five years, what, why, why couldn't you be an elder in this place? You see, this is the office, this level of, of maturity, of, of, of character, is something that men and women are called to in the church of God. So, all of us, we all suffer. Everything that I just talked about is suffering. That's everything that First Peter's been about. The call is to do it willingly. Why? Glory. Don't forget that. The next thing, our next pair, not for shameful gain, but, but willing, or eagerly rather. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. I'll be honest, uh, church planting helps with this one. <laughs> um, it, it at least staves off a lot of the temptation early on. Not for shameful gain. Uh, what shameful gain is there to be had? A lot, even in church planting, a lot. Now, the dividing lines for this one in our culture particularly are much more apparent than the previous pair that we just talked about. On, on the one and obvious end, you have health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, right? Getting planes would be shameful gain. Um, I think that one's pretty clear, like airplanes, that, right? Yeah, airplanes. That would be shameful gain. Um, as we move down the spectrum, uh, we just have, you know, mansions um, and $500 clothing allowances per week. Um, and we move then, though, down. Where, where do we struggle with shameful gain? Using people. Using people to, to selfish ends. We're going to pick up on this one in just a moment in the other pair as well. But using people. Wayne Gruden talks about it this way. He says, Greed and selfish interest are so near at hand in all human hearts that especially in this work, they must be constantly guarded against. We see this in our culture. There is a, there used to much more be than there is now, but even still, there's a natural trust that we are afforded because we have the term pastor. That can be easily abused. The idea of using people for their own gain, whether it's financially or through, or through power things, or positioning themselves, it can be easily done. Now, the call is that shepherds lay their life down. They don't use other people. They lay their own lives down. They give up their own life for the flock's interest. They defend the flock even at personal harm 
to themselves. Listen, the gain that they do receive is honest. And so we shouldn't feel any shame. We deserve our wages, right? That's, that's honest gain, but that's not what he pairs it with. He could say, not for shameful gain, but honest gain, right? That would be the natural pairing. No, he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Eagerly, this is the laying down of one's life for another. This is identifying those in your charge, the flock among you, as the word that we used in our class, beautiful souls. Instead of seeing people as a means to an end, you see them as beautiful souls for which to care for. Now, if that's the call for pastors who are in a position of power, I think it's arguably harder for you to look at each other as beautiful souls because you you guys can use each other without even trying. Or you can serve yourself without even trying. Or you could move yourself to not eagerly care for each other. I have the threat of judgment. (laughs) If I don't feed the sheep, they will starve and die. And when the chief shepherd shows up and says, they look like they're sleeping, that, that is a clear expectation of judgment on my part. For you, you don't have that same expectation of judgment. How do you care for one another? Eagerly? Or do you look to your own gains? We'll move on to the last pairing. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This one. <laughs> this one is the one that we hear the most. It's easy in our culture coming out of the 60s and 70s. 70s authority is bad, right? Even now we're so distrustful of authority. For many good reasons and many bad reasons. The culture has so affected, though, our view of the church in ways that we don't recognize. How do you deal with authority? We've seen lots of examples of what we're supposed to do. Whether or not the authority is good. We're still called to submit. That's that suffering part. It's good that you suffer for doing good. But in the church, in this context with, with, with overseers, elders, shepherds, you're under authority. And the recognition is that we are to not be domineering over those in your charge. Now, how do you define that? How do you define domineering? Because I guarantee you, every person in this room has a different line for where domineering is at. You can't define it. It's the same fight for free speech. If you limit speech, where do you put the line? I'm not saying that there's not bad speech. There's definitely bad authority that is domineering. But where do you draw the line? What is domineering for some is not for others. And so here's the key. The but. <laughs> There's a big but. Being examples to the flock. I'll tell you one of the chief ways to tell if an elder, myself included, is domineering. Are they requiring anything of you 
that they are not doing themselves or are not willing to do themselves. That will cover you 99% of the way. I think I can say with absolute faithfulness that Pastor Matt and I and Greg in the past few years have not asked anything of you that we are not willing to do ourselves. We ask you to tithe, we tithe. We are generous above our tithing. We ask you to be involved in the ministries at this church. We're involved in every single one of them. We are all three in DNA. We also have our technical own DNA, I suppose, in elder meetings. So we do two DNAs. Booyah. We do it all. We do what we ask. You're like, I haven't seen you at setup in a while. I've been in band for 10 years. <laughs> Every Thursday night, I haven't seen you at practice on Thursday. We, we do it. Now, I'm not trying to, to gain points, but look for that. When you start to feel pressure, when you start to feel like maybe we're being a little even severe, ask yourself, are they doing it? And if we're not, please, <laughs> please tell us. That will cover you 99% of the way to the bank on that. I'm not saying that, that that excuses certain things because there are probably things out there that we could ask you to do that are you shouldn't be, and we also should not join you in that. Um, I don't think that that is happening. And there's also a certain way in which that we should ask you. We shouldn't be brash, right? We, we shouldn't be hot-tempered in asking you to do these things. That's a different passage. This, I think, covers most of the things. Are we examples to the flock? Hebrews 13, 7, not 17, but 7 says that you should observe your leaders and follow them. Do what they do. And Jesus says, be holy because I'm holy. How are we doing at that one? He's asking us to do something we can't do, but he does it for us. This is something that you can do, and we are examples for you. See, when it comes to these three things, they can all be used to our own advantage. But that kind of elder is not going to last. That kind of elder is going to be exposed. God judges his elders harder than he judges regular people. And the things that elders do that are sinful and in public must be not just repented privately of, but must be repented of publicly. It is a separate tier. And yes, we are afforded many other graces. We are supposed to receive double honor. We're supposed to receive this crown of glory. We're supposed to have two people when it comes to leveraging accusations against us rather than just one. There are privileges that come with the office. But at the end of the day, the call is simply faithfulness. Faithfulness. Because the three of us are sheep just like you. We are under shepherds, but we are not a stand-in for Jesus. And we are not Jesus. We are sheep that for some reason have opposable thumbs to hold a staff and a rod and can kind of shudder around. We're not him. We're pursuing holiness with you. I don't know what you would change about us. I can take some guesses, and I kind of want to know. I don't know what you would change about us, and I'm sure it would help you, at least make it easier. But guys, you don't follow us. You follow us as we follow him. The call in verse 5, I'm going to leave most of this for Matt because it, the theme changes. It's humility. 
is humility. Submission to leadership, to, to authority, to, to God comes from humility. We read it at the beginning today. God stands opposed to the proud. He says it in the next verse. He stands opposed to the proud. Peter exemplifies humility for us, humiliating himself, saying, witness of the sufferings of Christ. Why? Why can he say that? Why can he say that he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ when he clearly was not? Because he's been restored. He's been restored. John 21 shows the restoration of Peter to Jesus. You see, we are to walk in faithfulness. We are to walk pursuing holiness and purity together until we see his face. That glory piece, man, that glory piece is where it comes together. There is suffering. Peter has made, made it absolutely clear that there's suffering. Pursue him eagerly, willingly, not for selfish gain. Caring for those around you. This is not just for us. You care for those around you. Lay your life down for each other. Pursue holiness together until you see his face. That's the great reward. I can do math. I know how much money I've missed out on in the past 10 years and how much is going to come. It's all in heaven. And I don't care because I get to see his face. You can't do any of this if that's not enough for you. You won't last. You won't finish the race as an elder or as just a runner if seeing his face is not the prize that you're running after. Run or walk in this case in faithfulness. Finish the race until you see his face. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we thank you so much for your kindness to us. Father, your kindness in giving us elders that love us and care for us, I can speak of this because there are two and five more or five total that are coming around me to care for my heart and soul. Father, thank you for the blessing that it is to live with faithful elders who love you. That, Father, as each one of us have our own seasons of struggle, that you have put more elders around us to care for us, to draw us back to you, to remind us that this world's not enough, and it's not supposed to be. Only you are. So, Father, even, even now, refresh my, our heart, that we are running a race to see your face. And the glory that is to be revealed, the intrinsic weightiness and gravity of your goodness. Father, give us grace to run, that we might come to your goodness. Father, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.